0: Therapist Uncensored brings you decades of experience with interpersonal psychotherapy, relational neuroscience, modern attachment, and anything else they think will be helpful in healing humans. Now hear your co-hosts, Dr. Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. Hey, everyone. Sue and I, as well as likely so many of you, have been having deep conversations lately around the topic of masculinity, about how men, including our own sons, have been Culturally conditioned to value stoicism and self-sufficiency, being the best, winning. And this comes at a real cost to all of us. You know, every day in our practices, Sue and I, as well as likely many therapists out there, see the impact that these kind of pressures have had on men themselves and the impact on their relationships with partners, kids, their friends. Now, don't worry. This is actually a very pro-men episode. In fact, this is one of the reasons why we wanted to have our current guest today, Esther Perel, on the show. Esther is a powerhouse in the way she is able to illuminate how culture and assumptions impact our lives and our relationships She is considered internationally as one of the most insightful and influential leaders of our time. She's also a New York Times bestselling author, and she actually has her own podcast called Where Shall We Begin, where she does live couples therapy work on the podcast. They are volunteers, not her clients. It's really a must listen. And her TED Talks have been seen over 20 million times. Now, in this episode, Esther dives into her current passion, which is being a catalyst for driving deep conversations about the paradox of masculinity. During our talk, I have multiple light bulb moments, but I just really love the way she highlights that men have to go through their entire life over and over again, reestablishing, improving their manhood, or as she puts it, risk losing it.
1: Welcome to the show, Esther. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. So to jump right in, if three guys were to gather together and to have a conversation about femininity in 2018, sort of modern femininity, it may raise a few eyebrows. This may be a good launching point to how is this conversation different from something like that?
2: Hmm. Like why why (laughs) is it that women get to speak about men?
1: Yeah, versus mansplaining, you know.
2: Yeah, no, no, it's a great question, like what gives me or what gives the women or, you know, the possibility of speaking about the other, if you want, you know, if there is such a thing as an other or others. I think I would like actually for men to come together and talk about modern femininity, and I think what they would probably speak about the most is their confusion. Because when I do retreats, when I facilitate retreats of men, and it's only men, it is a major subject of conversation, that confusion. What does woman want in the end? You know, the old Freudian question. So I actually would welcome men talking about women to other men in an honest way, which they don't do enough. And women talking about men to other men and women in an honest way, which they also maybe sometimes don't do enough. So for me, organizing a conference on modern masculinity or the masculinity paradox is not about an imposing discourse. Like I have the definition and I have the the truth on, on men. It really is about taking advantage of a prime educational moment in our society and taking advantage of this opportunity to create a conversation like nobody questions if we have a conference about children and we have a conversation where we talk about children and no, it's not the children who are necessarily talking about themselves or the adolescents. So it's about being thoughtful. It's about being respectful. It's about being expansive and probing in our thinking. And five years ago, I was asked what was going to be my next topic. And I said men and nobody was interested. And it took the societal tide wave that we have now for everybody to be interested. And I'm very pleased to be on that wave because I do think that it is one of the most crucial subjects of the moment.
1: Well, I love that. And, you know, another way that I have thought about it before is where we get in trouble is like when you have a power over dynamic or a competitive conversation. That's where you get into mansplaining what we've or any splaining, whether it be transplaining or rich splaining or heterosplaining versus a cooperative conversation where that one really listens and tries to do a dialogue and exploration, which is, it sounds like what we're wanting to do today and what the sessions conversation, you know, that you're trying to have.
2: You know, I think that if we could not speak about others and if we were not curious about others and if we were not interested in understanding others, we wouldn't be therapists. So this idea that only if you are of the same elk and of the same kind and with the exact same experience can you speak, I'm not sure that that's necessarily very helpful. I think what is helpful is the attempt to try to cross lines, to go on the other side, to cross bridges, to see what life is like and to do the best we can in understanding. No, we will never You know, I am raising children in a country in which I didn't grow up. I will never know what it is like to be an American child or one of the many American children, for that matter. But that doesn't mean I can't have a deep dialogue over that experience. I Mm. think what me sometimes questions is the presumption that one knows better than the other what the other is about. That is problematic. Sessions, you know, it's interesting. Maybe we should explain what sessions is. For me, it has been, for the last year, uh, a curation of an educational platform where I try to bring as broad a diversity of points of views, schools, theoretical models, disciplines of professionals working in the field of relationships and sexuality, coaches, educators, and therapists. And Part of why I wanted it to be like a salon where I bring the voices of everybody that I have found interesting, that I have learned something from, was in order to actually have an interdisciplinary cross-cultural learning platform that is not a chapel, that is not one model that is meant to answer all the issues, that becomes the primary portal through which the whole world is looked at. And in the same vein, I am organizing this annual event called Sessions Live, on the masculinity paradox where there's going to be uh, to me, it's everything I've wanted from a conference. It's going to be not necessarily nice and sweet. It's going to be thought provoking. It's going to be diverse in the kinds of subjects. We're going to divide it in four pillars, masculinity in relationship to intimacy, in relationship to power, in relationship to sexuality, and in relationship to identity, which probably will be the top one. So it's these four pillars, and a look, an in-depth look at modern man and modern masculinity through these four doors.
1: I mean, that is so exciting, and it is the opposite of what I was referencing earlier, which was... This idea of splaining, which is someone in more power telling someone in a marginalized group what it is like to be in that marginalized group. It's the opposite of that. And where I got that from was I had seen some comments on some of the interviews that you've given on masculinity from men who were trying to make the point that it was splaining for a woman to come on and talk about masculinity which is why I started with that, about that this is different partly because it is an inquiry and it is a dialogue and it is an open conversation. It's the opposite of a diatribe or a power over. It's, it's your point about masculinity and the problem with masculinity, which is the power over instead of connectedness.
2: I feel the freedom to speak about children about women about living in america about art about men it is a freedom of speech i get to speak about subjects that i am interested in i do not pretend to have the truth in fact most of the time i start any lecture by saying i may sound confident but i'm not sure of anything i'm not right i am gathering us here because in in this moment in time The lives of women will not change until the men come along. There is finally an opportunity for men to be able to rethink what it means to be a man in the 21st century, certainly in the West, and to be part of that the same way that I wanted men to be part of when women rethink their role at home and at work, the same way that the gay movement knew never to just demonstrate on the streets with only gays amongst them, the same way that Jews have wanted other people to be part of the acknowledgement of suffering. I mean, I have never found that there was anything useful in creating a silo that is based on the notion that I am actually so special that you will never understand me. Therefore, we can never really talk to each other. And the fact is that the field of relationships and couples therapy is a field that is probably 90% female. So here we are, so many women talking about men, but you know, I was sent a picture of a, of a program that deals with adolescent sexuality, and there was one man on the picture with 15 women on the board, and the point was being made to me, look, you know, here we are, teachers, doctors, therapists, it's all women, you know, who are trying to help men be men, and, of course, the same thing has happened in reverse for a long time, you know, where you would have one woman in a group of 10 men in a different profession, you know, so... We've had this issue of over and under representation in, in, in areas where we would do so much better if we had you know, a broad range of points of views. But I think this is what's happening now. These pictures will change, they will gradually shift the same way that there used to be pictures where you had one woman holding seven children in her midst and a man who was kind of on the side. That too has changed. So photographs are beautiful testimonies of social change.
1: And I'm just wondering if, you know, for our audience, if you can speak a little bit to what, how you are defining like the modern male or even what is to you, what is masculinity?
2: So I think that to me, it's very apparent about masculinity has always been is that on some level, one could say that we are born women and we become men. Masculinity is generally in a constant pursuit and defense of manhood. In contrast to being female, I would say that in our society, a man is expected to constantly defend and reassert his manhood or face losing it. You know, if I don't win, I lose mentality. I think Mm -hmm. that notion that, in fact, there is something profoundly fragile to the masculine identity is a very Mm -hmm. different point of view than the more blatant view of male power rather than male power in defense, in protection, in reaction to feelings of male powerlessness. So that would be one thing I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about masculinity as an identity that has not really been explored enough. I mean, there is a code, a male code, a male box. However, there's many words these days for, for looking at this in terms of how we socialize boys. And we socialize them from very early on, three, four years old, to disconnect, from their feelings, to disconnect from their connections to others, from their needs, to become stoic, competitive, fearless, and to very much entrench their identity as boys in the concepts of performance and competence, instrumentality. And we call that the male code. Maybe mm-hmm. the, when we talk about toxic masculinity, maybe this is where the toxicity lies in the code itself, you know, not in the deviance. Inside the code, that code itself is very narrow, has not been examined.
1: Yeah, you've talked about it as the disavowal of the feminine. And one of the things that you've said that I just absolutely loved was this experience that many, many men and about power of this early experience of humiliation that breeds shame, that breeds contempt, that breeds self-contempt, that breeds violence, that then turns into resentment for the other person for making them feel small, that then turns into this desire to... Control um,
2: over the behavior of the others.
1: It was a way of both naming the power over and the just sadistic behavior that can happen, but also having the empathy of what has happened to these men that can just absolutely really hurt other people. Uh, So I really like you calling it out, but also really putting it in perspective.
2: I would say that masculinity or you know, six on a number of different narratives, a biological narrative and a socialization, a cultural narrative. You know, we, for many years now, we have separated sex from reproduction. Now we are separating reproduction from sex and we are separating anatomy from gender. So we are reshuffling, you know, where the construct, the social construct come in and where is biology. The making of manhood, For me, the part that I am most interested in is primarily the cultural narrative. It is the socialization. The possibilities that we will have to expand the category called men so that men can also live with greater levels of acceptance, of self-acceptance, and acceptance from others. And we can basically challenge what are the pressures that are being put on men. I think when it comes to the realm of relationships, women have been massively served, not all, you know, and, and continue to be very well served. When it comes to men, the majority of them, gay and straight men for that matter, are underserved in the realm of relationships. There is very little that is available to them that is relevant to not being able to constantly act by and perform according to code, I'm doing the podcast with you. I just did a podcast with two men, you know, also a a psychology podcast. And basically one of them was asking me in a very personal way, you know, I'm very liberal, I'm progressive. I want my partner, my female partner to earn well. But, you know, when she was earning more than me and for so many years, you know, I can't tell you that this sat so easily with me. You know, and then there is the cultural view that wants to see this as this is great. But then there is the inside that says, you know, what is my worth? Where am I really a man? Where is my manhood actually expressed? How do I deal with the fact that she earns more? How do I deal with the fear that that means that she can leave me because that's actually been the way that we, we kept her pretty much tied at home? And, you know, it's not PC to admit that one actually has all kinds of archaic messages and legacies that live inside of us, that live side by side with often very progressive, you know, other scripts about gender configurations and gender roles. And it conversation that is so prime at this moment that, together with Me Too, together with the fact that we are, for the first time, dealing with relationships at home and at work as a central feature and concern of our society, which we have not done till now, just right with so many options. So this is essential for clinicians and for coaches, is to really be updated and to be really thinking in in very sharp way, not to exclude the man of the conversation and to say, this is a moment for you all guys to be silent and not to say a word and just to listen to the country, to invite everybody into a new conversation, you know, in a fishbowl-style way, if you want, where, where everybody gets to hear the other in a way that he or she never has, like when you do good couples therapy, for that matter, or good family therapy. It's actually not that similar. So that we can involve with better relational and emotional training so that we can create a space for that beautiful combination between, you know, connected and strong, which is something that not enough men get an opportunity to partake in. And many of them are raised by women, after all, not sure. But, you know, we are part of the system. And so it's multiple aspects that I think have not been really debunked and put to delve in.
0: No, we can all really see that. So important as women, we are very much part of the system, aren't we, as mothers and partners? You know, one of the thoughts I was having is that, you know, men's privilege is so apparent and so out there and been so much part of the dialogue lately. But women really have a different type of privilege, don't they? They have the privilege to feel strong in connection with others and to feel emotional and supported for the most part for that. And Esther, I'm wondering, with the message that you send to support men in opening up all parts of themselves, why do you think you're getting such pushback when you haven't gotten quite as much pushback in other ways?
2: There have been people when I wrote "Mating in Captivity" that had uh, some questions about, you know, the division between love and desire and the the kind of model that was not necessarily embracing an attachment perspective as the central perspective of my thinking, but more at both end. I think I have had both ends when I think about love and desire or between security and adventure, like Stephen Mitchell. I've had both ends when I think about infidelity in terms of what it does to you, but also what it meant for me. And I have both ends when I think about how we can create a more fruitful and prolific and, and, and positive culture of gender uh, between the genders, all the genders, on the, on the whole fluid spectrum. I think the pushback is generally from people who are more either-or. When it is people who like to see both ends, I think that they can see it you know, for what it is. It doesn't mean it's the only model, but it means it's a thoughtful model. What I think is really relevant at this moment as well is that for a long time, masculinity and femininity were narrowly defined. Women have had half a century to break open the narrow categories and this is a moment that is actually offering that opportunity for men as well. If the 20th century was the change of the women the 21st century will be the century where the men adapt to the women that the change, to the to changes that the women have made and in the end it is for the good of the collective it's for everybody because it's inter- it's interactive you, you know it's interdependent parts you can't change one without the other one adapting to it and everybody knows in systemic thinking that when there is change there are consequences to the change and every time before we encourage people to change we ask them how would they deal with the ambivalence of change so women want men to change, but they have an ambivalence about that change as well, and that too needs to be included. And men would like to change, but they have an ambivalence about their own change because there are consequences to the change. And systemic thinking has understood that a long time. It dealt with that in family life all along, including the polarization. Every couple therapist knows to work with a polarized system. So we have something that is really valuable at this moment as therapists, as clinicians dealing with often, you know, irreconcilable narratives and perspectives and experiences to really bring into the public space at this moment. And this is where I see sessions. This is where I see the conference sessions live. And in leaving the four walls of our office and bringing some of this deep knowledge that many of us have accumulated over decades because the society needs it. It's no longer we wait till people decide that they need us. It's that we, at this moment where relationships have become so central, you know, in ways that it never was, except when there was a crisis. And that has to do with the secularization of society and many other, you know, important social changes, that we have something to give to the collective good that I think is is really crucial. And this is where the gender story enters at this particular moment. It's gender, it's power, and it's done within a perspective that is positive around sexuality as well, so that it doesn't lump everything together. It needs a sex-positive approach. I'm going to leave you with one thought that I think has really been uh, occupying me. When it comes to relationships and well-being, personal well-being and self-care, I would say everything that is bad for women is generally worse for men. If women sometimes feel alone and gripped in silence, the silence of men and the shame that accompanies it and the isolation and the loneliness that they feel is worse because they're not even supposed to have the needs. So they're needless and they're they're on their own. If women deal with health issues, men's conditions about even looking for help when they have health issues is worse. Suicide is worse. Violence is worse. I mean, on all these counts, whatever is troubling women often troubles men in an even more acute way. And that is a very strange way of looking at this. It's very different from the the current moment where we are very busy talking about the men at the top and how they have dealt with their privilege and their power. I think that the majority of men don't live at the top at all. And they are the sons and the brothers and the husbands and the boyfriends and the partners and the donors of a lot of the people in our society, and we need to include them in the conversation about social good yes and i 've and I've
1: heard you say that you feel sorry for those men at the top um, it 's a very narrow space and you fa- and when you fall then you 're very, very small. So I really appreciate you reminding us of this compassion because it can be so painful when you're being the one stepped on. But you're absolutely right. We have a lot to offer. And can you tell our audience about the sessions, how to find you, you know, how to link up with you to find these resources?
2: So everything is on estherperel.com on my website. As well as on YouTube, on Instagram, on social media in general. Um, sessions is the platform. It's a monthly subscription training platform, salon. You have two weeks free to actually explore it and see if it speaks to you, if it's the kind of community that you want to be a part of. International, interdisciplinary open-minded, on the edge of relationships and sexuality work. And Sessions Live is our annual event, which will be in New York City on November 10, organized this year around the theme of the masculinity paradox. And then probably if you want to know the most my personal work, how I do it, is the podcast. Is Where Should We Begin, which you find on your podcast app and all your Apple iTunes. And it is 25 couples therapy sessions, they're not not my patients, they are people who apply to the podcast but they come to see me for a three hour consultation and it is the first ever raw unscripted anonymous couples therapy podcast so that you're literally in my office and while you're listening in depth to others, you often realize that you're actually standing in front of your own mirror. There, you will also hear me talk with the men and their partners male partners, trans partners, female partners about these issues of modern masculinity, but in general.
1: And I will tell you, Esther is a master therapist. I mean, you are making social change, but also just in the room. I can't even think of someone better. You are a master at unfolding someone and really getting to the root. So I learn from you all the time. And I know that people that work from you, oh, really, just absolutely the best. I
0: agree.
2: A colleague of mine once said that there are two things that we learn to do without it ever being, without ever seeing it, which is therapy and sexuality, lovemaking. And <laughs> you know, it's, it's a unique experience to sit in. The and we get, and we get to office. peek in and
1: see your therapy. Absolutely, <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> the, the only, uh, the only other exception to that is group, because and I do a lot of groups, and people get to see me make mistakes and you know see people work in groups. So. But that is great. So thank you so much for that. It is such a gift, both to therapists and to couples that get to peek in and see this. And, and you're right, and identify with the couples that you're working with.
2: One of the other barriers that I wanted to shake up a little bit is the barrier between the professionals and everybody else and the people and the, our clients, our, you know our couples, our families. Because I wrote Mating in Captivity or the State of Affairs to the general audience and then clinicians also saw it as an important book or professors, you know, to use in, in their work. I think the same thing is with the podcast. It's a genre bender, if you want. It's at the same time a training for therapists. I've done a few sessions with Rich Simon at the Networker where we literally took three of those episodes and turned them into two-hour teaching tapes, blow by blow. What do I do clinically? Why? What am I thinking? And so forth but they also are binge-listening for the general audience while they're driving across the country. And to have us actually delve into the same resources is quite new. You know, Things have often been divided. The therapists go to look for their professional content in one place and the general public goes to their self-help books in another place. I think to bring us together is something that is important at this moment as well.
1: Oh, and Esther, that's one of the things we're most proud of is that, you know, we're heard in 122 countries and probably half of our listeners are therapists, but the other half are just the smart, interested public that have really been following us and following the relational sciences and affective neurobiology and co-regulation. It's just been fantastic. And we get letters all the time about what a difference it's made to bring the science to the public without then they don't where people who can't afford therapy or culturally aren't interested in going to therapy so i totally agree
2: the podcast yours and and others it, it really is this merging that is you know instead of this high and low or popular and academic and a very interesting path to be on really i commend you That's for that right. thank you you too
1: and you know people understand it and they really want it and they're hungry for it so
0: I just so appreciate you being on we appreciate you being on the program and I I love what you're saying about the podcast and I will tell you that I often find one use of your podcast Esther is that when we have individuals whose husband or wife is really afraid to do couples it's so lovely to refer them to your podcast and it actually helps this entire dialogue happen so I'm just wanting to tell you that the desire you have in there is actually happening it's really wonderful
2: Wonderful. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure speaking with you both.